Well, Brooke and I are very compatible as a husband and wife, but there are a lot of ways in which we're different. Uh, my wife is very nervous right now. Um, this is kind of fun. Uh, won't be fun this afternoon, but it's fun now. Um, no, we, 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 can't, we cannot share a sandwich together. She is mustard, and I am right. Uh, mayonnaise. Um, uh, we don't really like the same television shows and movies. There are some exceptions to that, but we, we have different uh, interests when it comes to that. If we do have an evening to sit down and watch something together, a movie together, um, another difference comes out, and that's bedtime. Uh, Brooke is a night person. I am definitely not, and never have been. I'm usually wanting to finish the movie, and so I kind of want to plan the evening so that we finish the movie about the time that she would ideally want to start the movie. So after the house is quiet, everything's kind of put away, and the kids are in bed and all of that, that's her time to start. I'm, like, ready for bed myself. So, so generally, we'll try to kind of meet in the middle and, and start it later than I would like, earlier than she would like. But that, all that means is usually I end up not making it through the movie. And so I either fall asleep on the couch or I just say, I'm sorry, i got to go to bed. And, um, and so she, she, this has puzzled her, and it's because it's been this way throughout her marriage, that I have this ability to just leave near the end of a movie and never know how it ends. It is, I, I, I think it's a gift. Um, but I, I admit it's probably a little weird. Because endings are pretty important to stories, uh, movies and books. Uh, a good book, a good movie needs to have a good ending, or we probably wouldn't say it's a good book or movie. Um, a good conclusion to resolve the plot and to pull all those kind of dangling plot threads, pull it all together and, and, and bring it to a conclusion. And so when you have a, a, a wonderful conclusion, and I have seen the end of some movies and read to the end of some books. But when you, when you, when you have a wonderful conclusion, it's, it's just this, it's this wonderful thing. And it, and it leaves a mark. Well, but I still contend that sleep is better than a good ending to a book. And so I'll, I'll probably continue to nod off. But there is a story that really makes no sense without its incredible ending. Uh, it's the story of Scripture. It's the, we just read... Uh, the last chapter of, of the Bible, part of it. It's, it's the story of the world. It's the story, it's the story. It's, the, it's this great meta-narrative that God has written and is writing that has this beginning, a middle, and it has an end. It's past, present, future. It, 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 it unfolds and oftentimes we talk about creation, fall, redemption, consummation that's that's yet coming that's that's the ending that's what we're looking forward to and so as patrick alluded to and as we've said throughout this series the the apostles creed which we're using right now as sort of a framework to understand kind of a summary of the christian faith and what it is we believe as christians but the apostles creed is this large wide-scale map of the christian faith it also follows this movement of the scriptures follows this progression beginning middle end and so up to this point almost everything we've seen in the creed has already happened past tense and we've been confessing this together god the father almighty has already created uh, 
Christ has already been conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's already been born to the Virgin Mary. He has he already suffered under Pontius Pilate, already crucified and buried. He's already risen from the dead, already ascended to the Father. So those things are past. Now, the one exception was last week. We said Jesus now is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so present tense. But notice the change here in this next phrase in the creed to future tense. He will. He shall. Today we're talking about things that have not happened yet. This is, this is the ending. These are things that will happen, but they haven't happened yet. And so the Apostles' Creed, this is the line we're looking at. From, from whence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Now there are, there's, a, there's a lot there, but there are two big primary affirmations that are, that, that are in that statement. One is Jesus is going to come again. That's, that's one statement. Second, when he comes, he will judge. He will judge everyone. And so clearly, those, that's 12 words in this, in this creed. And, the, and they're loaded with meaning. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're just simply this high elevation, 40,000 foot look at, at the vast range of biblical terrain about things that are yet to come. And so again, we've, I've quoted Al Mohler several times this. this uh, All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. And this is certainly true here. There, this is just a succinct summary. This creed, the creed gives us this compressed, condensed uh, statement about future events. Um, I call it an eschatology sandwich or something like that. And eschatology just means the study, the theology of the last things. And so it's like a pressed sandwich, an eschatology panini maybe. Um, don't quote me on that. That's a bad illustration. But, you know, you've got a sandwich and you've got all those ingredients and all the things, all the components of that sandwich. And if it's all laid out, it looks like a lot. But you put it in that sandwich press and it just you, every bite you get something of everything. There are, there are many specific details in the scriptures about things to come. There are these separate future events that the Bible gives us detail on. And here, here they're squished together in this very succinct statement here in the Apostles' Creed. It doesn't tell us everything, but every syllable in it is true. And so, uh, if, you want to, if you want to open up that sandwich and see the ingredients, you can. the Faith Builders class right now is going through a study on the last things. Come, Lord Jesus, is the name of their study. And so you can, you can join them and, and we'll open it up. But th- there are lots of other biblical details about future events that Christians agree upon. So we, we would agree with more than, again, all Christians believe more than is contained in this simple statement. And there are, of course, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and have been in churches, you know there are, there are many aspects of eschatology, of last things, that, where there's a good bit of disagreement. And there are various interpretations uh, of, of how things will unfold in the future. And so because of the, the, the nature of this particular study of the Apostles' Creed, we're, we're not going to cover all of those differences in one sermon today. Uh, you can go to the class and the, you, can, you'll can, you can see what some of those various interpretations are. That was very tempting this week. And I was telling Patrick right before the, the, the service, my plan on how I thought I, I, what I thought I was going to preach this week, it, it was very different by the end of the week. And so I, I kind of had a, a thought that I would, I, would, I would be covering some of those, those, those dynamics and walking through a... Uh, a lengthy explanation of things to come 
And, and when we do go through books of the Bible, which is primarily what we do here at the church and when I do in preaching, walking through kind of paragraph by paragraph through the scriptures, we, we go into that deeper dive in some of those passages that, that where those details are laid out for us. But today, I simply want us to see and affirm and, and rejoice in this clear, powerful, hope-inducing reality that Christ is coming again. And I just want us to enjoy the panini this morning and and we can i'm making you hungry i'm going to lose you already um and so and this brings us this there's one addition i've I've been given some reasons probably not every week but most weeks of why we're doing this study on the apostles creed which is again kind of out of the norm for us but one of the reasons to study to memorize to recite to preach uh, to confess this creed together as as believers is to emphasize points of agreement between believers that is, that is part of it. Between different but truly Christian groups, people, uh, churches, denominations. Um, and, I, and I've withheld this reason until this week for this purpose. Because it's at this point in the creed where there is a lot of disagreement between churches and between denominations and believers. So nobody, nobody disagrees with the statement of the creed. But when we start getting into the specifics of Christ's return and future judgments and judgments... There can be many differences, but the creed, it gives us common ground. And that's, not, that's a good thing. And it's, it's certainly not that, that, it's, um, that we shouldn't, that it's, it's not that we should think um, that those areas of disagreement and, uh, and, and discussion, that those are unimportant or that we shouldn't talk about those things. That's not it at all. No, but, but humble, charitable discussion, disagreement, that's a, that's a good, healthy thing in the church but one of the things that helps us stay humble and charitable in our disagreements and in our discussions is to, is to remember what we do hold in common. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And so the Apostles' Creed again, From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. This, this future promise is succinctly stated here, but it takes up a lot of real estate in Scripture. A lot of it. There are over 300 passages just in the New Testament that refer uh, either directly or indirectly reflect this glorious hope of Christ's return. That's about one in every 25 verses in the New Testament is dealing with eschatology. And so, he shall come is a big big statement. And I I do not have slides for you this morning. It's not because I didn't try. I had some computer issues last night. And it was too late to, to harass Susanna for help. And so, um, so the, the, each statement, I'll have three, just three statements if you're taking notes. Uh, he shall come. You can put that in quotation marks each time. But we're going to make three statements about that, that glorious hope that we have as believers. That he shall come. Christ shall come. First, he shall come is going to look very different than, quote, he came. He shall come is going to look very different than he came. What I mean is when, when Jesus came the first time, initially, there were only a small handful of people who even knew that he came at all. And his, his entrance was quiet. He came, he came small. He came in weakness. He came as a baby. The, the banner over his first coming was, was humility. Philippians 2. His, his majesty, it was, it was veiled behind his meekness. And so he, he came the first time and it was, it was small. Not so with his return. 
His second coming will be very different. No one is going to miss it. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Nobody's going to wonder if it happened. The, the banner over His second coming, it's not going to be humility. It's going to be glory. In Matthew 24 verse 30. This is after the tribulation. But he said, Jesus says, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now, you just think about what was contained in that singular verse right there. I mean, just, just, just every word, every phrase is oozes glory. Just look at that again. Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes. Now, we think Son of Man, maybe in that Mark Gospel Mark sense where it's Somewhat emphasizing his, his humility, his humanity, his identity with us. That's, that's not the idea here in the, in the context of Matthew 24 and 25. This is, this is pointing to his prophesied supremacy and greatness. He's the Messiah, the Son of Man in a Daniel 7 way. He's, a, he's the glorious Messiah. He, and when the Son of Man, he comes in his glory. In his own innate, inherent glory. And all the angels with him. This angelic entourage that will accompany him. These angels, what are angels? They're heralds, they're, they're messengers. What are, they, what are they heralding? Christ, his glory, his supremacy. Notice what it says. It's all of them. All the angels. I don't think that's an overstatement. I, I think that all the angels will be present and accompany Jesus when he comes back. And then he will sit on his glorious throne. There's only, only a glorious king can sit on a glorious throne. And so, so th- that's just, those are, there are so many passages in Scripture to, that, that point to the manner of Jesus' return, the fact that it's going to be glorious. And so, you, again, you compare that with his first coming. At Jesus' first coming, his birth was surrounded by all kinds of controversy. There were, there were those who were near that didn't even really get it. Didn't understand who he was. Didn't understand what was happening. He's born to this marginalized uh, teenage girl. He, he didn't have a place to be born, so he's born in a stable. There's, there's questions and rumors about the father, who his dad is. Not only that, where does Jesus grow up? He grows up in Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That was the expression in the day. He doesn't have a place to lay his head, we find out. He's basically living like a homeless man. But not so when he returns. No, there will be no confusion, no dispute, no wondering. All will know immediately that he is king, glorious king. Let me just say, believer, brother and sister in Christ, you, you should be cheered by that thought. Yes, your Lord is mocked now, and, and the skeptics sneer and they scoff. And, and so would we, wouldn't we? Apart from the sovereign grace of God. And such were we. But He will return. And it will be glorious. He will be vindicated and we will be vindicated in Him. And I don't say that. That, that should not have the effect of it puffing us up with pride. Like, hey, we're on the winning team. 
and, and, and we're happy with thoughts of retribution. That's not it at all. But there is comfort in knowing that the wicked are not going to always prosper. There's a hymn, old hymn that we sing with new melody to it, but nothing know we of the season. And there's a line that I was kind of bouncing in my head this week and thinking about this. But oh, what sacred joys await us. We shall see the Savior then. Those who now oppose and hate us never can oppose again. And he just, the line is, brethren, let us think of this. Think of this. We, this is something we should think about. Christ is coming back. When he comes, it will be glorious. Second, so he shall come. He's going to come and he's going to come not like he came. He's going to come and it's going to be glorious. Second, he shall come with purpose. With purpose. There are several reasons we see in Scripture that Jesus is returning. Um, he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to claim his church. He's going to bring blessing and final consolation to Israel. He's going to rescue us from this evil age. He's going to take us to himself that where he is we may be with him forever. He's going to, there's going to be the resurrection of our bodies, life everlasting. Those are affirmed in the Apostles' Creed and we'll see in a few weeks. But one prominent reason Christ is returning is to judge. To judge the living and the dead. And that's what the statement in the creed we're looking at states. And that's what scripture states. Christ's future return and, his, and, and, and judgment, they're tightly connected and bound together in the Bible. It's not just in the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we, there's this theme of God one day finally judging the world. We had in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 96, this psalm of praise that we generally associate with, with praise and adoration of God. But in that, verse 13, sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. And that's not unique to Psalm 96. That's throughout the Psalter. That's throughout the, the Old Testament. It's just a standard refrain in the Old Testament, particularly in books of prophecy and in books of, of, of praise, that, that believers in the Old Testament, they experience this world of, of difficulties and hardships and sufferings and persecution and, and loss and injustice. And, and so they, they look forward to this day when God would put everything right. They were confident that He would. They looked around and they saw that things weren't just a little bit off, a little wrong. No, things were exceptionally, exceedingly wrong. And, and, and this hope that one day God would put things right, it was, it was strong in them. It burned in them. And so it comes out as they're praising God in the midst of their hardships. Uh, I mean, there's so many passages, but Isaiah 11.4 uh, you know, turn there, but just listen. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Then he, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Again, just a common refrain that, that this is the expression of Isaiah's hope. One day, again, God will set things right. God will settle accounts. He will... He will um, he will settle accounts with the poor and the mistreated and the oppressed and he will deal with the oppressor. It's, it's this constant glorious hope throughout the Old Testament and it should be a glorious hope for us too. Christ is going to come 
and judge. Now, in the New Testament, we do learn in the Old Testament, their hope is in God is going to come. The Lord is, is coming. And he's going to finally judge. Now, in the New Testament, we find that that hope is firmly centered in Jesus Christ. And that's made very clear. Now, in the Old Testament, there were prophecies that were pointing to the Messiah. And so I'm not saying he's not pointed to in the Old Testament. But I'm saying that's made explicitly clear in the New Testament. Matthew 19, 28 in the, in the new world, the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. And that's not just to, to reign, that's to judge. Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives this lengthy teaching on, on His coming judgment. And, and, he, and He says he's, coming, he's going to come in glory, read this a moment ago, and sit on His glorious throne. Again, to judge. Acts 10, verse 42 Peter says he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the one. He's pointing to him. He's the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. Acts 17 may be more familiar to us. Paul's in Athens. He's preaching the gospel. And he says that he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, that verse could be right out of the Old Testament. God is going to one day judge the world in righteousness. That's Psalm 96, 13, basically. Now, it's the rest of the sentence that gives us specifically this New Testament hope centered on Jesus. So he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. Oh, it's Christ. It's Christ. Christ is coming, and He's coming with a purpose. He's coming to judge. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, Paul's warning against the wrong kind of judgment among believers. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And again in... 2 Corinthians 5.10, speaking to believers, the judgment seat of Christ. But believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then again, we read Revelation 22, verse 12. Jesus himself says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I mean, that's, that's a sampling of hundreds of passages that speak to this fact. Fact. I mean, this future promise that Christ is coming and He's coming to judge, it's as, it's as certain as God's Word is true. And so we, we can count on this. Now the creed, the Apostles' Creed, it's simply, it's simply affirming what Scripture teaches so plainly. That there is a day coming when Christ will come and publicly wind up history and will judge all people. That's what it's saying. And it's not, it's not to determine who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. That's not it. That's, that's going to be settled already. It's going to make that plain, we could say. But no, Christians will be judged as Christians. They're accepted already in Christ. This is justification. We're already clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. There is no condemnation that awaits 
us as believers. So that's settled. Christians will be judged as Christians, but we will, we will receive the, as, as, as uh, the old hymn, There is a Fountain, says, the blood-bought reward for spirit-empowered, faith-propelled obedience that's born out of our union with Christ. There will be blessing and there will be reward that comes as believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so ultimately, believers, we have nothing to fear on judgment day. Every shortcoming in your life has already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made peace by the blood of His cross. So I I just want to make that clear. But listen, this is the other side. Rebels will be judged as rebels. Christians are judged as Christians. Rebels are judged as rebels. And they will be rejected by the Lord whom they rejected forever. It is a frightening thing. You read Revelation 20, this great white throne judgment. And the devil and demons and and all those who've rejected Christ will be plunged forever into eternity separated from God and His, and his mercy and, and to, to endure wrath forever. That's a sobering reality. The separation is coming. And so it, 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 we say that though and I want you to see this point is not disconnected from the previous point. It's part of Jesus' glory that when He comes, He comes to judge even to separate and to condemn the, the wicked. Being, being judgmental is not a character flaw of Jesus. Now, you think about it, just in our own context. Uh, we, 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 I know judge, judgment, it has a very negative connotation. And, but I used to think that, that we all had this adverse reaction to judge, judgment. And, but I've been thinking about it. I don't think it's that we are um, opposed to judgment. We, we cast judgment all the time. <laughs> we, are, we are all pro-judgment people. Um, and we, we, are, we live in, in, with this constant sense of outrage. And we're separating people all the time. For some, maybe the con- conservative, air quotes, right-leaning. We're, it's, it's moral, immoral, and we're separating on, those, on that grounds. For others, maybe lean a different direction. It's tolerant, intolerant, separating from the, the judgmental, from the open-minded. We're making separate. We're judgment. We're separating from people all the time. So it's not that. But, uh, but think about this. As we, as, as we think about judgment, Christ's judgment. When, when you are outraged about something that is truly evil, is that a character flaw in you? Or is that a character strength? If someone were to look at something truly evil and be totally unaffected by it, it does nothing to them, it, would you look at them and say, man, I love how open-minded they are. I love how tolerant they are. No, you'd say something wrong. This is evil. Why doesn't this bother you? There's something wrong with you. And if that's true for us, how much truer is that for Jesus Christ? If, if, if even we had have, have some, we have some sense of right and wrong, some sense that justice should be dealt with, how much more for Christ to it, but to an infinite degree. He doesn't even have the tiniest amount of sin and selfishness 
and unrighteousness and pettiness mixed in with his response. So if Jesus is truly glorious and knows perfectly the evil that we do and say and think, how could he not come and judge? Frederick Douglass was recounting the past sins of of his former slave masters, recounting the sins of his slave masters. He asked the question, will not a righteous God visit for these things? And the answer is yes. And his name is Jesus. And he will come to judge. He will judge the living and the dead. And again, his judgment is not like ours. It's not stained by all the insecurities that we have that we're trying to cover up and in, in the way that we judge others. It's not, it's not stained with all of our pettiness. It's not stained with all the ways we try to bolster our, our self-image before people. His justice is administered in a perfect, as a perfect and righteous judge. Now, listen. If you are here today, you wandered in, you were invited here, you've been here weeks, months, years, and you are without Christ, please, please hear me. You will face the judge of all the earth. And the way to prepare for that day is not to resolve from this day forward to try and be a better person. You will never, ever, ever be good enough to face that judge. That's not your hope. It's not like the good people get get through, the bad people don't. That's not it at all. It's settled by that point. The only way to avoid the judgment and condemnation is to be clothed in the righteousness of another Jesus Christ. And that comes by faith. We trust in Him. We look to Him. John 5, 24. Jesus Himself says, Truly, truly, which just is another way of saying, take this to the bank. There's no more true statement I could proclaim to you. Truly, truly, surely, surely I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's your hope. To not come into that kind of condemning judgment that separates you for eternity is to trust in Christ. But dear brothers and sisters in Christ, your, 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 your trust is in Jesus. The fact that Christ will come to judge, it's not a, it's not a thought that, is, that should evoke dread in us. We, we, we are to be ready. We're to be found faithful, but not fearful. This is, this is a truth. It is hope. It's hope fuel for the Christian. That Christ is coming back to judge. Why? Because His judgment is going to be perfect. We who are in Christ, we don't, we don't have condemnation to fear. And, and so, but we live in this world. We presently, we're strangers, sojourners in a world where, that's full of injustice. It's everywhere. And, and, and human justice, it, it always has been, always be, will be limited. It's flawed. I mean, this, this is... This is, we see this everywhere. This came very personal to me this week. And in, in a way, on Tuesday morning, I woke up to some sickening news. Um, it, it paralleled something we've walked through as a church together. But there was a man, there was a worship leader uh, from my time, uh, our time in, in Abilene, Texas, when we were in college. He made a big mark in my, on my life. We, we served alongside one another in a, in a ministry to college students. We we spent significant time together. I, I treated, trusted him like an older brother. Um, and he, he led worship uh, in a band for many years, traveled all over youth camp, stuff like that. He moved to Nashville several years ago, has been working in 
Christian music industry and artist management, that kind of thing. Carson and I were up there this summer. We were, we, I was supposed to meet up with him, reconnect with him, it, and the plans fell through. But Tuesday morning, I woke up to find out that he had been arrested for, for molesting boys at a church that he was serving in Abilene, Texas in the 90s while I knew him. The dates were right in line with when we were spending time together. And there was this secret life. And, and, and it seems that there has been a pattern for years of moving from church to church um, and abusing other boys. And it sickens me, not just because of my disappointment, but to think that there are maybe many men who, whose lives have been shattered um, over the past 20 years and dealing with the shame of this soul's tortured and then the church the pastor in Abilene of where it was happening he's still there and he has, he has royally fumbled uh, this week and how, it, how they've been handling this and it's just like a knife is being twisted into the, 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 the young men who've been affected by this and it's just it's, it's angry it makes me angry it makes me sick it hurts it's a mess it's ugly it's awful. It's confusing. And so maybe I know some of you have walked through situation we have as a church and, and but you maybe you've been abused in some other way and so you understand the injustice and you're dealing with that, you live with this. But regardless, we've all experienced this. We've all seen it up close with people we love in some way, this gross personal injustice. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, though we've all been guilty of this. We've been guilty of injustice towards, towards others. And, 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 and I'm, I'm looking around, I'm thinking of some situations. Some of you are in the furnace of affliction right now. And your soul is just panged by some things you're walking through. And it hurts and we weep with you. And this truth that Jesus Christ is coming, and he's coming as judge of all, is, is to be help to us. It's a hope to us. Every, this is from Al Mohler in his book on the Apostles' Creed. Listen to this quote. Every single moment of pain cries out for the need of the judgment and the arrival of true justice. Read that again. Every single moment of pain cries out for the need of the judgment and the arrival of true justice. So true, perfect justice is coming. What hope and help that is to us jumping ahead to my last point here so but this is in all the mess and all the muck of life and in in the mess of life in this fallen world we lack full knowledge we don't know what to do we don't know how to make sense of things we don't understand exactly all of the angles here we don't know what we we can't control the way other people are thinking speaking and and acting and we mess up in how we think speak and act it's it's a mess but praise god Jesus is coming again and he's going to sort it all out. He's going to, even the hidden things, not just the, the objective thing, but the, the hidden, the motives of the heart, he's going to disclose it all. and He's going he's gonna to sort it out and he's going to make things right. That's a glorious hope for us, brothers and sisters. That's not a day to fear if we are in Christ. It is a day to dread if you are not. One other implication of this, just the fact that there's going to be this future final judgment, it frees us to love one another now and to forgive one another. 
And what I mean is harboring bitterness, seething thoughts of revenge, being eaten up by the self-focused, it's not fair kind of mindset. These attitudes are graciously suffocated by a biblical understanding of the fact that he shall come and he shall come to judge. Love for one another as fellow sinners. We're not minimizing the sin, the hurt, the offense, but, but that love for one another can thrive when we set our hope on Christ's return to judge with perfect judgment. We can leave it to him. Doesn't mean we're not working toward reconciliation in, in some sense now, but, but we don't have to be eaten up by, by that. Alright, so He shall come. He shall come in glory. He shall come with purpose. And part of that purpose is to judge everyone. And then third and finally, He shall come. That's the church's hope and help. And we've alluded to this already. But in our world today, pessimism prevails. Doesn't it? I mean, there, there, there are there people talk about hopes and dreams, but the, the hopes that most people think about, they're, they're basically just shallow, flimsy, short-term wishes and wants. But as Christians, we, we have available to us this enduring hope that outshines any doom and gloom of, of difficulties in life in this fallen present world and the difficulties that we experience here. This is, and this is not new for the church. The burning hope for Jesus to return. There's no other way to explain the courage and the joy and the sacrifice and the love and the endurance of the early church. I mean, they had this relentless, forward-looking gaze. They're anticipating Christ to come back in power and glory and victory. And so how they spoke of Christ's return often was they called it the blessed hope. This is what it is. It's this blessed hope that we have as believers. Christ is coming back. In Acts, we saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at the ascension. Jesus came as disciples, charged them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And, and after that, he, he, after he said that, he's taken up out of their sight. That's the ascension. And the two angels, remember, they come and they say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, the same Jesus... The one who's going, the one who's crucified, dead and buried, ascended, risen, ascended. The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. This, this precious promise that Christ would come back in that same glorious way profoundly shaped the rest of their lives. I mean, you, echoes of this promise, they, they are found in every sermon the apostles preached. In everything they wrote, this is why we have over the, these over 300 references to this hope in the, in the New Testament. And so because Jesus is coming again, just think of some of, the, some of the passages that we know, and we can't go through them all, but because Christ is coming again, they could rejoice while facing various trials, knowing that the tested genuineness of their faith would result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because he's coming again, they could live godly lives, 1 Peter 1, 13-19. Because he's coming again, they're reminded that they have not lost hope forever for those who've already died. But they, they, they're not to weep as those with no hope because Christ is coming back, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. Because he's coming, they're to comfort and encourage one another with, by reminding each other of this promise, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. So he shall come. 
he shall come. It's, it's, it's what I call, it's a watchword for the church. A watchword. A watchword. We had an illustration of this. We were in the elders getting ready to pray and the door was locked and we didn't know it. Well, maybe we did it on purpose to keep Ron out. I don't know. Uh, I didn't do it. But Ron's knocking, looking through the window, can't, jiggling the handle. And uh, we made some joke, you know, what's the password? That's a, that's a watchword. A watchword is, is, is a word, a phrase that's used by a group to identify one another. Um, members of the group, like password, code word. So usually it's, as we think of a watchword in particular, we're thinking of something that express, expresses something of that group's core belief. Well, during the, in the early church, during the intense period and season of persecution for those first centuries, for, for a man to be Christian was for the most part to forfeit his property and most of the time his life. In many places, just to survive, Christians lived in catacombs and caves and in, in, they're living in secret, off the grid. As we so when they did come out, when they did travel in, in cities in the Roman Empire and they went to, the, to uh, these different places, they, they had watchwords where they could identify one another, where they could know one another, where they could introduce themselves to one another. And so one of those watchwords we know from church history was Maranatha. Maranatha. Maran, our Lord, Atha, is, is come. He comes. So it's, it's come, our Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the title of the study here. Another one of those, that's from 1 Corinthians 16.22. Another one of those was Acre Hu Elfe. Acre Hu Elfe. That doesn't quite roll off their tongue in English like Maranatha. Um, but it, it, mean, it means until he comes. Until he comes. This is from 1 Corinthians 11.26. The Lord's table for as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Acre Hu Elfe. And these secret watchwords were spoken by believers. This is one of the ways they identified one another. And it was a tremendous hope and help. So imagine you're, you're a believer, you're a sojourner, a stranger, in one of these in Philippi or in Ephesus or Rome, and you're passing by and you hear that word. What? It, it, it meant kindness, it meant hospitality, it meant gladness, love, fellowship. It meant hope, help. I mean, one of the main things, in addition as we've been talking about, I'm not saying this is the only hope, but we, we look back to the past atonement of Jesus Christ, that He was crucified, dead, buried, raised again for us, and sin has been dealt with. We look presently that Christ is now seated at the Father's right hand. Atonement made, He's seated, interceding for us before the Father. Yes, those are means of help, but, but in addition to those things, the, the, what bound the disciples, those early disciples together as they faced relentless, merciless persecution was the comfort and the hope. Maranatha. Our Lord comes. He's coming. And that hope was built in the very fabric of the church's worship and, and liturgy. And so all the way through, you find this precious hope. You, as the early churches would often repeat the Lord's Prayer, they're saying, your kingdom come. That's a, that's a prayer for the return of the Lord, that the, the king, if there's going to be a kingdom, there's going to be a king's present. And as they recited the Apostles' Creed, which is 1,600 years old plus in this form, but in an earlier form, much older than that, was repeated by these Christians as this great confession of hope. He's going to come, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And of course, the Lord's table. Every time we eat and we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Akri hu elfe. The hope of he shall come, it absolutely thrilled those first Christians. And it should for us as well. It should. I realize this truth is not in vogue today, like maybe some other truths. I, I would almost say it's seen as slightly embarrassing for some Christians and churches. And I'm not talking about scoffers outside the church. Peter said there would always be those who, who would sneer and say, where's the promise of his coming? Not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm saying in the church, the hope of Christ's return is, is sort of in eclipse. Why? Why isn't it seen by us as the hope and the help that it has been for our Christians, brothers and sisters throughout the centuries, and I would say is today by most Christian brothers and sisters around the world today that aren't in the prosperous West? A few possible reasons. Let me give you a couple. One, I, I think there has, there's been theological silliness associated with future things, with eschatology, a phrase I learned from Howard, newspaper eschatology, where you're, you're basically reading the Bible through the, the headlines of the day and instead of the other way around. Uh, you know, all kinds of obsessive date setting and books that have said Christ is coming back in this date and he doesn't. And so it, it can be seen by some as, as cartoonish fiction rather than core, core doctrine that it is. Maybe the wide diversity of views about the last things, it scares people from from this truth people are frozen they hear about all of the different isms and all of the uh, that are connected with eschatology all the various you know uh, variations of interpretations and, and they, they, they're afraid of, of, of divisions and so they don't want to talk about think about these things so maybe that's some of it uh, I, I think this is a big part we talked about this several weeks ago but there's little there's little thought of anything but the present today word presentism that we talked about past doesn't really matter it's not important future doesn't really matter what matters is now and that's really all that matters another factor is i think it's just the prevailing skepticism that's in the world and i think that affects the church that the, the, the constant barrage of attacks on on even things in the past the historicity of jesus and and the gospels it opens the door for doubts among believers even whether we can honestly hope to see Christ return, that, that the, the secularism and the naturalism of the day, it, it can diminish our hopes in this supernatural conclusion of history. And then another reason, I, I just think the church tends to be, particularly in where we live in the West, it, it tends to be rather worldly-minded. We do. Um, we can be so caught up in the affairs of this world, even the good things of this world, that to the point that we fail to seek the better things. We're not, we're not drawn to things to come because we enjoy the good things now and, and, and we have this hurried pace of life to, to get hold of the good things that it squeezes out the desire for the better things, for the best things yet to come. J.I. Packer said it this way, we, we think less and less about the better things that Christ will bring us at his reappearance because our thoughts are increasingly absorbed by the good things we enjoy here. And so he shall reign. It, it doesn't seem like the hope and the help burning in us that it once was to the church and that it is to the church in many parts of the world today. You go to places where the believers are intensely persecuted today. This is the promise that they're clinging to. 
But may we, by God's grace, where he's placed us, not to be embarrassed or ashamed of where he's put us. Thank God for the mercies that we enjoy. But by God's grace, may we set our hope fully, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May that be true of us. I, I, I want to conclude, just if you'll turn with me, Second Timothy chapter 4. I want you to look there with me. Second Timothy 4, passage that you're familiar with and anybody who's ever preached or taught, this is probably a passage you're familiar with, but it's not just in that context. Tim, Paul's writing to Timothy, sort of the last lap of Paul's life. He knows his end is probably near, sort of his last words. And look how he, he begins this last chapter in our English Bibles of this last letter. Second Timothy 4, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence, listen to this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Okay, did he pull out the big guns there or what? I mean, this is loaded. You think he's serious about what he's about to say? I, I charge you by God and by Jesus Christ, who's going to judge the living and the dead, by, by his appearing and by his kingdom. And what does he say? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. But listen to the weight of what he's saying. Charge you in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus. Going to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. I, I know sometimes when we hear this passage, we think of this context. The guy standing on a stage behind a podium, if you're Justin, not Eric. And, uh, you know, speaking publicly in this manner. That's, that's not the fullness of what this means. It means that. I mean, that's, that's a fine application, but that's not it. We, we all need to proclaim, preach this word, approve, rebuke, exhort, great patience and teaching. We all need to be sober-minded. We all need to be steadfast. We all need to endure suffering. We all need to do the work of an evangelist. We all need to, to fulfill our ministry. And what he's saying is our, is our understanding of the future and our conviction about that and our confidence in that and our, with our hope fully set on that, it fuels present behavior. And so it should for us, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do not know when you will return, but we know you will return. And we know that when you appear, we will be like you because we will see you as you are. Lord, we confess by faith today that that knowledge is enough. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, come quickly. We pray in your precious name. Amen.